This morning, we are wrapping up our sermon series in the book of Mark. We've been in it for a year and a half, and some of you are relieved beyond measure that we are finally wrapping it up. Some of you feel like maybe we didn't do enough justice to the gospel of Mark. And so here we are wrapping it up, and this morning will be a little bit different. So our normal practice is looking at a passage of scripture and me standing up here pointing out various parts of that passage of scripture and trying to teach it faithfully and help us apply it to our lives. This morning's a little bit different. We don't have one set text. This morning is going to be a little bit like a movie montage. And so if you're not familiar with that, I'll give you the actual definition. Movie montage is the process or technique of selecting, editing, and piecing together separate sections of a film to form one continuous whole. And so you've probably experienced movie montages as you've watched movies, maybe in a war movie, it's been displayed in flashbacks or maybe in a romance movie of the sweet times together between the, the two couple or between the two people that you follow in that movie. Or maybe if you have seen a Rocky movie, then you for sure have seen several montages of him training to fight some terrible Russian guy. <laughs> or maybe you are more of the sports type and you're just used to watching SportsCenter and you are familiar with SportsCenter Top 10, the highlights of the plays of that previous week. This is essentially a highlight reel of the Gospel of Mark. And so you'll notice that in your Bibles, Michael preached a couple weeks ago, and he went from Mark, or he preached on Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Now, if you are using one of the blue Bibles, you're going to be on page 837, I believe. 836. 836. Um, but you will find there that that is the beginning of Mark, and Mark ends in chapter 16. Now, there's a bit of a debate between whether it ends in verse 8 or whether it ends in verse 20. And we are taking the position by wrapping up after verse 8 that we just think it ends in verse 8. We think that, well, here's a few reasons. That one, the earliest manuscripts just, just don't have those verses 9 through 20. But then also, it feels like a bit of an abrupt ending um, if you end in verse 8, which is a reasonable objection to the position that we're taking on this. However, it seems to be consistent with Mark's abrupt writing style. He says the word immediately or at once 42 times in his gospel, which if you space it out, divide all that, that's one time every 16 verses or so. He's using the word immediately or at once. So Mark's writing style is just very abrupt. So for it to end abruptly seems relatively consistent. However, if you take the mindset that verses 9 through 20 still should be in there, that's perfectly reasonable too. So you guys are all reasonable people, as Alistair Begg likes to say, and you can just look into that yourself and come to your own conclusions. But this morning, we're not focusing in on verses 9 through 20. We're going to do an overarching view of the book of Mark. And just some added on things. So the things that are in verses 9 through 20 are things that you're going to find in other gospels too. So we're not missing out on anything dramatic here. You're going to find in verses 9 through 25 elements. You're going to see appearances of Jesus to individuals and groups. You'll see initial reluctance from the disciples to affirm that he is, in fact, the risen Christ. 
You'll see Jesus commissioning his disciples to go proclaim the gospel. You'll see promises um, that Jesus gives to his disciples that they'll perform miracles in his name. And then you'll also see that Jesus ascends into heaven. And so by not going over those things in verses 9 through 20, you can still find them in Matthew, Luke, and John. So, as we get into Mark, here's some background for the last time on the Gospel of Mark. It was written by John Mark, and he was a companion of Peter, so he likely got the majority of his source material from the Apostle Peter. And it was written to Christians in Rome in roughly A.D. 50 or 60, around that time. So it's 20 to 30 years after Jesus' death. And one of the things that Mark is really interested in when he's writing is moving his readers to a response. We said earlier how often he says immediately. He describes something and immediately they did this. Then immediately they did this. Or at, at once they went over here. So Mark is interested in getting a response from those whom he is writing to. One commentator uh, said this about it. He said, the ministry of Christ unfolds in such a way that readers will ask, who is this man? But Mark's readers need more than just the right answer. For even the demons know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Mark's readers need to know not only who is this man, but what is the right response? And so this morning, we are going to look at those two questions because we think that Mark devotes his entire gospel to answering those two questions. The question of who is this man, Jesus, and how should we respond to him? So each week, one of the things that I try to do is just provide a summary sentence. So if you're taking notes, you can just write that down. So later on, if you forget, you can say, oh, you know what? Here's what the whole sermon was about. It's one sentence. So here it is for you. Jesus, as the Son of God, restores every person that, one, depends on him for salvation, and two, swears allegiance to him as king. Jesus, as the Son of God, restores every person that, one, depends on him for salvation, and two, swears allegiance to him as king. And you're going to see in your bulletin where there are notes that there are three points and so the points that we're going to be going over as we answer those two questions are going to be Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Christ, you can even put slash Messiah, and Jesus, the King. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Christ, and Jesus, the King. And so as we go through this, we're going to go pretty quick. So as I said, we're going to be starting on page 836 in the blue provided Bibles. But we're going to just keep flipping. And so be ready to, to move through the gospel of Mark. But essentially what we're trying to do is just put a bow on the sermon series. Just say, hey, we spent a lot of time in this. Let's condense it. Let's get one good nugget to take away before we go and spend, Lord willing, five weeks in the book of Ruth. So that's the the series that we're looking to do next, and that's going to feel like breakneck speed if we're only spending five weeks in it compared to a year and a half. So today we're trying to try to get the, the nugget, the main thing, out of the last year and a half. And then, Lord willing, next week we will begin a five-week series in the book of Ruth. So before we look at this 30,000-foot view, let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, it truly is a gift 
to look at your word. We are so grateful for the gospel of Mark. We're grateful for the emphases that he puts in his writing. Lord, let it move us to action. Let it move us to the right response as we consider who Jesus is. We thank you for restoring your wayward people through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, our church has needs. And so as we come here expectedly, waiting to hear what you have to say to us in your word, we pray also for the physical needs that are around us. Lord, those who need physical healing, we pray that you would provide that. Lord, we pray for the, those mothers in the room who are expecting that you would continue to keep them healthy, keep the baby that they're carrying healthy. Lord, we are grateful for our nursery workers, those who watch over those babies and allow mothers and dads to be able to focus more in the Sunday morning service. God, we pray for your blessing on those who give of their time that aren't able to be in this part of the service because they are serving the body. We pray for your blessing on them. God, we pray for us as a church that we would be missionally engaged as well as we enter into the summer months or there are events going on around Westerville and around Columbus. And we pray that we would not just attend those events, but we would attend them with a missional focus. And we would seek ways to represent Christ, to be faithful ambassadors in the city where you have placed us. God, we pray also for the city, for the town of Uvalde, Texas. God, we pray that you would comfort the families in ways that are beyond their understanding. God, we ask that justice would be had. Lord, we thank you that you do promise ultimate justice. But God, we are asking right now that you would comfort the families of those 18 children that were lost, the three adults that were lost. God, please end these mass shootings. We feel the pain and the weight of the broken world that we live in. God, we ask that you would address it. We thank you that you have promised us that you ultimately will, but we pray that there would be justice even now. And God, we pray for those who are taking this gospel to other parts of the world. We pray specifically for Alex and Lauren Follett in West Africa, that you would give them endurance, that you would protect them physically and spiritually. Now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, guide us as we look at the Gospel of Mark. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the first point in your bulletin, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, this point, you'll see the verse references to the side of that point. This covers the first passage, the very first chapter, up until about halfway through chapter Eight. And so if you would, look with me on page 836. This is Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So we're answering the question of who is this man? Who is Jesus? And the first thing that we're saying is that he is the Son of God. And we see this right from the get-go of the Gospel of Mark, where the Father declares that, that he is, in fact, the Son of God. So starting in verse 9 of chapter 1, we read, In those days, 
Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so right here, we see the Trinity on full display, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at the same time. We see Jesus being baptized. We see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and we see the Father speaking. And so Christian, just right from the get-go, this is why we're Trinitarian. You will never find the word Trinity in the scriptures, but this is one of the primary passages where we say, hey, look, it looks like there are three persons in this one God. It's not just God being one and manifesting himself in three different ways. It's that there are three persons in the Godhead, and we see all three of them active at the same time right here. But then, that's the more theological point to, to see there. But the more pastoral point that I want us to see is that the Father says of Jesus... He says, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. And so Christian, this morning, one of the aspects of the good news of the gospel is that if you are in Christ Jesus, then the Father looks at you and says, in you, I am well pleased. Oftentimes we can beat ourselves up because we want to fight sin, we want to pursue holiness, and that is good. That's evidence of being a Christian, is wanting to put sin to death and pursue holiness. But Christian, be reminded that because you are in Christ, he looks at you, and his disposition towards you is that he is well pleased. And that's not because of what you have done, as Ben pointed out. It's because of what Christ has done for you on your behalf. So you may fall this week, you may have fallen last week, but Christian, be reminded that you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then the Father still looks at you with the disposition of being well-pleased. Further, the Father declared who Jesus was, the Son of God, but then Jesus goes ahead and confirms it. And so when I go to the DMV, and I need to get something done, I can just tell them my name. That's not sufficient. I need to provide some form of ID, passport, driver's license, sometimes a utility bill, to confirm that I am who I say I am. This gospel, the gospel of Mark, starts off with the Father declaring who Jesus is. And then we see for the next seven or so chapters that Jesus is pulling out every piece of evidence to confirm who he is. So you don't need to flip to all of these, but I'm just going to go on a little bit of a highlight reel with this. Jesus, in chapter 1, he heals a man with an unclean spirit. Still in chapter 1, he heals the sick. He cleanses lepers. Then in chapter 2, he heals the paralytic. In chapter 3, he heals a man with a withered hand. Chapter 4, he calms a storm. In chapter 5, he heals a man with a legion of demons, and a legion being a thousand plus demons inside this one man. Jesus is exercising authority over him. Still in chapter 5, he heals the bleeding woman, and then he heals Jairus' daughter. In chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. 
He heals many sick people in Gennesaret. Then in chapter 7, he heals the Syrophoenician woman's demon-possessed daughter. He heals a deaf man. And then we, as we get into chapter 8, we see that he feeds the 4,000. And then he heals a blind man. Jesus is pulling out every piece of evidence to confirm that he is, in fact, the Son of God. And in all of his miracles, here's what he's doing. As the God-man, the one who represents God and the one who represents man, he is perfectly exercising dominion. And so when you flip over to Genesis chapter 1, you don't have to flip there, but if you want to, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 through 28, here's what we see after God creates man. He says this about him. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as image bearers of God, God being the one who has ultimate authority, as those who are made in his image, he's dispensed authority to his people to exercise over his creation. So to be made in the image of God, it includes having authority and having dominion over much of God's creation. However, Adam and Eve failed at this. They were told to have dominion over everything that is on the earth, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's chapter 1 of Genesis. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we see a living thing that moves on the earth approach them, and they fail to exercise dominion over it. Instead, that moving thing, the serpent, leads them into sin. And so now Jesus as the God-man, the one who perfectly represents God and the one who perfectly represents man, he comes into the world and he faithfully exercises dominion. And in faithfully exercising dominion, he overcomes the world. Jesus exercises dominion over the physical. We saw in that list him healing people who have physical ailments. He exercises dominion over nature, with storms that he calms. Then he exercises dominion over the spiritual, evil spirits, demons. And so if you are in the Son of God, if you are in Christ, then the good news is that just as he overcomes the world, we too will overcome the world. His faithfulness to exercise dominion, which Adam failed to do, is now done perfectly in Jesus. And if we are in him, we need to experience the victory that comes with that faithful dominion. So Christian, be encouraged. Be encouraged of the victory that is promised you. It's not a question mark. It is promised. It's secured. This fallen world and all the pain that comes with it will not have the last say. Maybe you're here this morning and you have health issues, you know of someone with health issues, and know some here just experienced that even recently, be reminded that you are united to the great physician, the one who gives us example after example after example, just in this gospel, that he has authority 
over physical illness. Keep asking him for healing. At the end of those prayers, submit your will to his. Say, not my will, but yours be done. But be comforted knowing that ultimate healing will come. The sickness and the illness that we experience in this world is not permanent. It might feel permanent. Sometimes we have a, a narrow view of eternity, but in the light of eternity, it's not permanent. Christ is going to make it right. He's going to bring ultimate healing. Maybe you are here today and feel anxious. Maybe it feels like life is just bananas right now, totally crazy. Be reminded. <laughs> Be reminded that you are united to the one who calms the storm. The one who brings peace out of the chaos. And then just on a theological note, know that if we give up the notion that Jesus is the Son of God, as some groups do, they say he was just a man. He was a perfectly righteous man, but he wasn't actually divine. He wasn't the Son of God. If we give that up, we lose the good news of the gospel. And here's why. Because if Jesus is not God in the flesh, then he cannot represent God on our behalf. By being the God-man, he can perfectly represent God and he can perfectly represent man. And on the cross, he can restore the two. But if he is not man, then he can't represent mankind. If he's not God, then he can't represent God. And so Jesus being the Son of God is pivotal for the good news. And practically speaking, a man would not be able to withstand all of God's wrath on the cross and then live. Only God himself could do that. And he does in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see that Jesus is the Son of God. But the second point is that Jesus is the Christ. Now, embarrassingly, when I was a Christian for several years, it was not until several years after becoming a follower of Jesus that I realized that Christ wasn't actually his last name. <laughs> I thought Christ was Jesus' last name. So I thought, you know what, how do these people not see that he was the promised Messiah? It's literally in his name. <laughs> well, maybe I'm the only one, but if there is anyone else out there, it's a title. It's not actually his last name, and it essentially means Savior. So more literally, it means anointed one. And so in the Hebrew, Old Testament, that word is translated as Messiah. In the Greek, New Testament, it's translated as Christ. And so when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we're saying that he is the promised Messiah. He is the promised Savior. He is the anointed one who will restore God's people back to him. And we see that the Old Testament gives us a lot of evidence that there is an anointed one that was to come. In fact, there are, depending on who you ask, 250 to 300 Old Testament prophecies about this coming Messiah. And I've shared this before, but I think it's worth sharing again. Mathematician and renowned, or renowned mathematician and professor Peter W. Stoner used um, his mathematics ability as well as 600 students to come up with what the mathematical probability would be for just eight of those prophecies to take place in any one person's life. So there's 250 to 300 of those prophecies in the Old Testament. They took eight and said, what are the what's the probability of just these eight taking place in any one person's life? And here's what, they, what it came out to. It said, 
the chances of the eight that they chose to take place was one in 100 quadrillion. Those are the chances, just eight of those taking place. One in 100 quadrillion. If you wanna know how big that number is, that's one with 17 zeros after it. Those are the chances. And he illustrates it for us. He says, let me actually help, help put this into perspective for you. He says, let us try to visualize this chance. Suppose that we take 100 quadrillion silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. He says, they will cover all of the state two feet deep. So not just covering all the state, but covering all the state two feet deep, not two layers deep, two feet deep. He says, now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. He says, blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have of writing just these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time. The chances of any of those things happening, those eight happening, are astronomical. Yet, and hear me, all 250 to 300 took place in the life of Jesus. The mathematical probabilities are unbelievable. So we're not going to look at all 250 to 300 of those, but we'll look at one. Okay, so we've been spending some time in Genesis. Genesis 3.15, this is God speaking to the serpent after the fall, after Adam and Eve failed to exercise dominion and the serpent came in, led them into sin, and now there's a fall. And now God is describing to them what the effects are going to be. And he says this, he says to the woman, and he's referring to the woman and the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That he shall bruise your head is referring to a deathly blow. If there's a strike to the head, that's, that's known as a, a mortal blow, a mortal wound. And so the promised offspring that God says of the woman is that it will bruise the head of the serpent. However, the serpent will bruise the heel of that promised offspring. And so the deathly blow that will be delivered to Satan will come at a cost. And Jesus says, I am that long-awaited offspring. I am him. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And then Mark gives us at least four passages affirming this. And so look, if you would, in Mark 8. So the first point went through Mark 1.1 to 8.26, and now we're looking at Mark 8, starting in verse 27. We see, Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Mark, after 
building the question of who is this man. The father declares it, and then Jesus confirms it with all of these miracles. Now we see in chapter 8, verse 27, that Peter and the disciples start to get it. They confess that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. And then just a few verses later, we see the transfiguration, which displays Jesus as the anointed one, as the Christ. And then a few verses after that, we see that the anointed one, Jesus, announces that he will be delivered, killed, and will rise after three days. So Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. And then Jesus is displayed as that in the transfiguration. And then Jesus says, this is what it means to be the anointed one. It means I'm going to be delivered, killed, then I'll rise on the third day, which confuses the disciples because their understanding of a Messiah, of an anointed one, is not that he will die, but that he will restore the physical kingdom. And then in chapter 10, Jesus gives a little bit more color to what it means to be the anointed one. He says that he came to give himself as a ransom for many. So the good news, Christian, this morning, is that if you are in Christ, your ransom has taken place in him. The penalty of your sin, of your rebellion against God, has been paid for by Christ. He gave himself as a ransom for many. Not for all, for many. For all those who would call on him as their Savior, who would depend on him and him alone for salvation, and who would submit to him as their master. Jesus is the promised Christ, the one who saves. He is the one who will be delivered in the place of many, to be struck by the serpent. His ransom came at a cost. He was scourged. He was beaten. He was hung on a cross. He died on our behalf. However, he didn't stay dead. He delivered a deathly blow by proving himself to be more authoritative and exercising dominion even over death. And through him, we will all experience that as well, if you are in Christ. So Christian, despite all of the mathematical odds that we discussed, God still kept his promise to provide a savior, to provide a Messiah. You can trust him to keep all of his other promises too. The odds were astronomical, and yet God kept his promises. He will keep his other promises to us as well. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will one day wipe away every tear. You can trust that he has, in fact, been tempted in every way that you have, and he can relate to your struggles. He will always, as he promises, provide a way of escape from temptation that we experience. He is faithful and just to forgive us every time we come before him and confess our sin and ask for forgiveness. You can trust that promise. And he will come back to make all things right. He's given us this promise. He's capable of fulfilling it. And he will. Church, this is where we come in. We get to remind one another of these promises. We live in a fallen world that is difficult. And we experience the pain that comes with a fallen world. That's why we need one another to remind each other of the promises of God, to remind each other of what he has said. We don't have, 
at least majority of us, I imagine, don't have memories that just remember everything. In our fallen state, we forget things. We're forgetful. And so therefore, we need each other to remind each other of these promises. Then a question for all of us is Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Savior. Are you depending on him for salvation? And if not, who or what else are you depending on? Because if you're not depending on the Christ, then whatever ground you're building your house on will eventually collapse beneath you. Trust in the Christ. Trust in the Messiah to take away your sin. It's in him and him alone that we find salvation. And the third point, Jesus the King. So we've seen Jesus the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, and now we see Jesus the King. And so this, we're going to move a little bit quicker as well through this, similar to when we looked at Jesus the Son of God. But Jesus' kingship is displayed in several ways throughout this gospel. And it starts in chapter 11. And so in Mark 11, we see Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He comes on a colt or a donkey that had never been ridden, which was symbolic of a king. Kings would get colts or donkeys and uh, they would jump on the ones that had never been ridden to show their authority over that thing. So it was a kingly act for him to come into Jerusalem on a colt that had never been ridden. They also lay down, the people lay down cloaks and leafy branches to give a royal entry. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus showed his kingly devotion to his people by going into the temple and purifying it, by expelling those who had defiled it. Then we see in Mark chapter 14, his feast, a kingly feast, where the Lord's Supper is initiated. And this feast was to remind us, as we'll talk about later, of the coming kingdom. It wasn't just, hey, let's get together and, and have a good meal. He gave it a purpose. It was to remind them of the coming kingdom. Mark 14, verse 25 says, Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's initiating the Lord's Supper, and it's meant to be a reminder to remind us that there is a kingdom and there is a king. It's a reminder of the allegiance that we give to him of where our citizenship is, that it's not in this kingdom. We are citizens of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. Then in Mark 15, we see Jesus's kingly clothing where he's dressed in a purple robe. Purple was very expensive. So they, when they put a robe on him to mock him, they were in fact displaying his kingly status. They gave him a crown, although it was a crown of thorns. And then the charges that read against him in Mark 15 was that he was the king of the Jews. And then his burial was a very kingly one in that it was in a rich man's tomb. And they brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Now, we talked about this. A typical burial would have anywhere from zero to five pounds of spices. And so for them to bring 75 pounds, some commentators have said that that was enough for 100 men. They said it was a burial suited for a king. Today, 
to 75 pounds of spices would have been valued at anywhere from 150 to $200,000 worth of spices. And then, last but certainly not least, we see this king display his kingly rule in his resurrection. The fact that nothing is greater than him. There is no higher authority, not even death. He shows himself to be authoritative. He shows himself to be king over all. In every way, Jesus is depicted as king. However, it's just not the king that the people expected. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's oftentimes not the king that we expected. And so our response to this king can sometimes feel more forced than natural. However, our response must be one of acknowledging him as king. And this is done inwardly through faith, and it's done outwardly through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through evangelism, through other actions where we proclaim this faith. It's inward, and if it is there inwardly, then the outward will happen. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so, Christian, we've talked about this before, but we'll say it again. Your words, your actions, they do not save you. Your church attendance doesn't save you. How much you give doesn't save you. How many people you talk to about Jesus does not save you. How many people you lead to Christ does not save you. All of these things are wonderful things, and they're good things, and they're evidences of faithful followers of Jesus. But... They don't save you. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. Martin Luther said that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So if you truly are a follower of Jesus, there will be fruit. And Christian, or non-Christian, I should say, if Jesus is not your highest allegiance, if he is not your king, if he is not your Lord, your master, then what is? What drives every action that you make? If you were to take an inventory and think about why you do the things you do and just continue to bring that up. Why do I do that? Well, okay, so why do I do that? Why do I do that? Just keep going up and trying to figure out what it is that drives you. If it is not Christ, and you're on shaky ground, and I encourage you to call on the name of Jesus. He welcomes you. He says, come. Come to me. And so because Jesus is king, our allegiance to him is required in order for us to enter into the kingdom of God. He is the king. So if we want to be involved in that kingdom, if we want to be brought from the kingdom of darkness over to the kingdom of light, we must submit to the king of the kingdom of light. And that is Jesus Christ. So in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen God provide a way to restore his wayward people. That was the phrase that we said countless times. It's God restoring his wayward people. And he does this through Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who is the victorious King. And all who embrace this, all who embrace him as God, as Christ, as Savior, 
as king are welcomed into his kingdom. Not just as tourists who are coming in for a temporary time to see but don't truly belong, but as citizens of that kingdom. You are told you belong. This is your home. The Father looks on you and He's well pleased to have you in the kingdom because you are in Christ. Ephesians 2, 19-21 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Don't be caught up by that alien term. It just means foreigner. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, in Christ Jesus, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is the 30,000 foot view of the gospel of Mark, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He's proven it. The Father declared it. He confirmed it. He is, in fact, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, the one that was promised in the Old Testament. And beyond all mathematical probability, all of those were fulfilled. All those prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. And he is the victorious king who will one day come back and establish his kingdom here on earth fully. When you purchase a home, you have a final walkthrough. Some of you are experiencing that now. Some of you experienced it in the past. It can kind of be nerve-wracking. But it's the final glance at the home before you jump in. This, this morning, is our final walkthrough through the gospel of Mark. Let the gospel drive everything that we do going forward as a church plant. Lord willing, we can someday stop calling ourselves a church plant and call ourselves a church. But let the gospel be at the core, at the center of everything that we do. Jesus is the Son of God. It's in Him and Him alone that salvation is found. And for all those who trust that and submit to Him as King, we'll be welcomed into His kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the good news of the Gospel. Thank you for Jesus, your son, Jesus, the Savior, Jesus, the King. Thank you for showing us who he is in the Gospel of Mark. And we pray that it would drive everything that we do. Help us as we move forward as a church to be rooted and centered on the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.